everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast where writers sit around drinking tasty beverages to talk about writing, publishing, and the whole creative process. There may be rants and raves that opinions that do not agree, but are lovingly delivered. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Your pro fan base today includes Chaz and Karen Brinchley and me, Jeannie Warner. This is episode 184, Interview with Carrie Sperling. Welcome, Carrie. Thank you for having me. Well, it's about time we got you on the show. I think you've been mentioned at least two or three times. I know you were summoned in such a way. This is like a summoning, right? Three times? Yes. Oh, absolutely. I have demonic tendencies. It's true. But I am safely within a pentagon. I was barely certain. And you seem to have a background. You were I, When I was reading a little bit about your bio from some of your books that you've written, you were in Anglo-Saxon, Norse, Celtic uh, mythology and history, all of these things? Yes, I, I, uh, my first degree is Anglo-Saxon, Norse and Celtic, which is a combination of history, literature, in, and in my case, archaeology. Other people do a, a language or something. And I then have a PhD um, in the history of, well, I, <laughs> early medieval Wales um, and its relationships with England and Ireland and the continent in the period sort of from well, about nine about 950 down to about 1120 um, and then I bet I've taught across the whole early medieval British scene and Viking. Well did you get the PhD because you loved Arthur or vice versa? Um actually no neither <laughs> so uh, the PhD is Tolkien's fault um I discovered when I was about four or five, courtesy of Anne of Green Gables, that there was a job called being a writer. And I made up my mind that was what I was wanted to do. And I then, you know, I sort of, if you want to be a doctor, you, you go and go work in a hospital. If you want to be a teacher, you go and get a teaching qualification. So, well, how do you become a writer? And the only writers I had read about um, a few years down the line, the only autobiography I'd read was, was Tolkien. And in order to write fantasy, which I wanted to write, you apparently needed to have a philology background. So when I was looking for university courses, I went hunting for, for philology, um, found there wasn't really a philology degree as such, and that the one Tolkien had done, which was at Oxford, was boring. Um, and involved far too many things I wasn't interested in. So I applied for Anglo-Saxon, Norse and Celtic, was lucky enough to get in and promptly discovered that I didn't like philology, but I loved history. So you can I blame think, Tolkien. I um, think it's beautiful. And you're the first person that's ever said that a writer needs a history in philology. So philology <laughs> majors of the world, just stand up. Your moment has come. <laughs> someone did ask, someone did actually ask me if you need a a medieval history PhD or a medieval studies PhD to be a, a fantasy writer and the answer to that is no of course not well it doesn't uh, hurt but, but that was where my brain I think had gone when I was I don't know 14 or something. Well, but now I... Arthur was a back burner thing I you know I used to read my mother used to read to me when I was small and we, we would, she'd read things like tales of King Arthur and his knights um there's a British uh children's book there was a, writer, a person called Roger Ladsland Green who wrote uh, wrote simplified versions of Egyptian myths. Well, I think uh, I, had, I had Steinbeck's version and then White's version. So yes, 
Yeah. And then, you know, you get Tennyson later when you get incredibly patient, but what are the other, <laughs> what are the other big uh, writers of Arthurian that everyone should touch on? Rosemary Sutcliffe, another British writer who wrote one of the first historical, uh, in inverted commas, attempts to write as though he was a historical figure. I don't believe in uh, an historical authors in, in a very specific, narrow sense of a person called Arthur, who was a major important leader and did lots and lots of things. I think he's a composite of lots of different people over time. But Rosemary Sutcliffe wrote a very plausible, well, what if he was a not a king, but a war band leader, a uh, Duxbell or a Duke of War. Right. Um, it's, yeah, I've it's, heard that too. It's, I mean, the book is dated a bit, but it's still a jolly good book, um, if you can find it. It's probably in print, it usually is. Well, your latest book, The, the Book of Geharis, I, I have always loved the Arthurian myths and stories and from Mists of Avalon and all of them, but did this grow out of your novella, which I had also, I have to admit, it's on my Kindle reader and I hadn't read it, The Serpent Rose? Yes, um, I wrote Serpent Rose a long time ago, uh, about 1992, I think, as a writing exercise for a writer. I was in a writer's group at the time, and it was a dialogue between three characters, and I wanted to make them instantly recognisable. Um, and you go to the Arthurian, my brain went to the Arthurian love triangles. And for some reason, I thought, well, Morgaus and Lamarack and Geharis, that's a weird one. People don't think about that. So I think that was where that started. And I wrote the scene and then the whole thing kind of got away from me um, and turned into a novella. And I looked at it and thought, what do I do with a 14,000 word Arthurian novella and stuck it in a drawer? Or, um, was there somebody who read it and said, this is a book? Or did you just pull it out and say, I've got more to say on it? Um, well, I wrote Rose Not a couple of years later because I liked the characters and I, I sort of thought, well, what about the women who get the knights acquire a damsel, marry her, and then you never really hear about her again? I wonder what their lives are like. Um, and then I did put that in a drawer. Um, and, oh, goodness, where are we now? Some point about three years ago, I was having lunch with the British writer and editor Ian Waits. And Liz Williams is another British writer. And, and Ian asked if Liz had a novella lying around and she didn't. And Ian said, I won't ask you because I know you're a very slow writer. Mm. And Phil, who's my other <laughs> half, said, oh, but she does. She has two. <laughs> and I kind of blinked at him and went, but those are really old. But Ian liked them. So... It's kind of an accident. And then I was invited to be the guest of honour at the East British EasterCon, which is the British National Science Fiction Convention. Congratulations. Oh, very, thank you very much. And Ian Waits said to me, would he, how about we did a book for that con? I love the end. Yeah. And he said, why not continue the Geharis novel novellas? Because I'd always, I'd always had ideas about at least one more and possibly two more, but I'd never got around to them because there isn't a market for 14,000 word Arthurian novellas, frankly. That really isn't. And, and that's a dirty shame, I tell you, because yeah. I love novellas. <laughs> I do. And tour.com and people like that do a great job, but it's not really their sort of territory, I don't think. I don't know. Um, but anyway, that's, that's where that came from. Um, 
and it's with Nukon because it is technically it's a collection of novellas rather than rather than the specific novel because each of them does stand alone. Because um, otherwise, I would have had to have complex negotiations with Dor because I you know non compete clauses and all that. But they were very nice and said, no, no, that's novellas. We're not worried about that. How oh, nice. That's very nice. They well, are very nice. That's basically irrelevant, isn't it? But when I love the way you put them together, because it felt like as you were reading it that, you know, I could see, okay, there's, there's the serpent rose. I identified it clearly. But then I liked the way you were sort of telling the story of a complex person from many different angles and many different points in time. And there's there's retrospective and there's old and tired and missing in hand. And there's there's a lot of interesting ways that you can approach the same story and make it different and yet the same. And that was really neat. Thank you. Uh, that was sort of accidental because, I mean, T.H. White or um, Mallory or the Steinbeck retelling of Mallory, which is wonderful. There is this, there are the stages in the the lives of the Arthurian court. So, you know, there's the early bit, there's the, the high successful bit, there's the grail quest and then everyone dies. <laughs> and so that kind of provided a template. But I didn't want to write the Grail Quest because Geharis doesn't interact with the Grail Quest um, in, in Mallory or the Vulgate cycle, which is the big French, um, huge, enormous French settle tales, which predates Mallory and which he used. So I wanted to do something different, and that's where Knotted Thorn came from. That was kind of a riff. This is this is really technical and boring. You can so, never bore us with being technical on how you wrote something. The 12th century, uh, pretty under 12, wrote the several Arthurian long poems in the early, well, early to mid 12th century. And these, one of which is Percival, which is not finished. And various other people continued it later on. And in the first continual, continuation of, of Percival, there's a little, there's a short sort of embedded tale about Geharis and his interaction with a damsel who's not very pleased with him and um, a, a magical land which has a tendency to disappear and reappear. And I kind of wanted to play with that because while it's sort of complete in itself, it doesn't, in the way of a lot of these things, it doesn't entirely make sense. <laughs> and then, then it got mixed in with the Mabinogion because I have a lifelong grudge against the fourth branch. Blooming sexist. Uh, there's this theory that Bagamandogin was written by a woman. This is a rather story. There is this theory. Yeah, and I mean, no woman is going to write something in which the second and the fourth branches are just all about abusing and undermining and demeaning women and presenting them as entirely as property, transferable property, who have whose agency comes entirely through what men let them do. Ah, oh, so I decided to. Especially since that seemed to be an entirely Victorian reinterpretation of what history might have actually been like. No. Uh, in fact, the, the whole equal independent Celtic woman thing is a, is a modern myth, which starts occurring from the end of the 19th century. If you look at the actual early medieval texts that we possess, the status of women was not good in early Ireland or Wales or Scotland. They were property. The, in the case of Ireland, there are two, it's a pre monetary society, but they have two units of currency effectively, which is cattle and slave girls. Women, oh. could, uh, women are property lifelong. 
um, in all these cultures, they are legal miners. They are they can't own anything other than small personal items. They can't inherit things. They can't if, if they're divorced. Uh, they don't keep the children, and they they trap they transfer from man to man. So you're either controlled by your father or your husband or your son uh, or another uh, male. Okay, and, wait. I have something that I have to ask then, as as an expert in this field. There was something years ago that said the Vikings were very unfortunate because they cleaned themselves and they brushed their hair and they were too attractive to our women. Was it also that Viking society was a little bit more equal? I mean, we've found more women warriors and they're identifying that many oh. of these tombs were women. His, oh, was that yeah. the conflict between a strongly patriarchal organization and a, you know, if you got the strength to swing the sword, you go, girl. I, I mean, certainly you were better off with a woman in, in both Anglo-Saxon England and early Scandinavia. Um, I think the degree to which women were warriors is something we are never going to know. And I think the tendency to see that as a marker of equality to some extent reflects modern assumptions about what is the high status role. It's more manlike. But I mean, Icelandic women, for example, in the Viking Age, they were the people who ran the farms, looked after everything, planned the planting, could sorted the household, they had all the economic power. And they were trusted to do that and they were equal with their husbands in that. And they did and while they spinning. Yeah. Didn't they do something with spinning and they standardized cloth and exporting? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean and they they could own, they could inherit land. Um, they could give land away, which again early it's only with the arrival of the Normans and the Norman invasion first of Wales and then of Ireland that women were able to inherit land or any substantial amount of property that wasn't personal, clothing, jewellery, domestic items. So the whole myth of the independent Celtic woman is actually quite difficult because it, it leads to, it makes it very hard for modern women in these cultures sometimes. I mean, Ireland has struggled with whether women are people for centuries. Um, and it's still struggling in some way. Um, and that is not something that was imposed just by Christianity. That actually speaks to a deep-rooted, very patriarchal culture that we can trace back to pre-Roman. And so, yeah, and, like and it, there's an element of countries where you can change back to this single thing. Like when China, they said women didn't need to pay taxes. When I first mm. read that, it floored me. I'm like, wow, that means you're no longer a citizen, right? I'm, mm, I mean, certainly not being a legal adult is very common in a lot of earlier cultures right. um, and probably some modern ones that's this is way out of my area of expertise <laughs> well then bringing that back in you you in your book of Gaharis, you have you brought up the idea of a number of triangles and they're not triangles so much as they're dodecahedrons you have going here yeah. <laughs> like if you look at the less Famous stories. And I mean, there's so much Arthurianga out there. It's ridiculous. You know, the huge quantities that are not available in English, some which are not available in anything other than the original medieval language. Um, but there are all these complicated relationships. Everyone's related to everybody else, which leads to all sorts of tension. Lancelot has a ridiculous number of half brothers, cousins, uh, nephews, etc., etc., for example, who make life very difficult. 
I love how you're posited that this group of sisters has to marry that group of brothers, you know, for for either dynastic or to marry feud or something. But it all presupposes that one likes all of one's siblings. And I love that Geharis does not really like all of his siblings. No. Well, they, I mean, the Mallory, this is some of this comes from Mallory. I mean, the the, the Gareth story about how he, you know, he's disguised as the kitchen boy and then he goes on the quest. That's Mallory's invention. And he just adds at the end, you know, because he's introduced Lynette as the who comes and guides Gareth on his quest, but he's nasty to him all the way. And at the end, Mallory just says, and King Arthur, you know, let get, get married Gareth to his lady Leonor, who he adored. And and then he married her sister to one of Gareth's brothers and her cousin to one of the other, one of the other brothers. Nobody seems to have got any say in this other than Gareth and, and Leon, Leoness, who were wanted to marry each other. And these sorts of that seems to happen a lot though in different mm. cultures. It's oh, it like, does. Okay. Yeah. yeah, it's very, it's very believable because again, it's it's a it's a con business contract. It's not about romance, which is why all the romances are behind the scenes, <laughs> extramarital. Um, yes. It's almost the whole troubadour idea. If you don't get to pick who you're going to marry, but you can pick who you can love. Yes, it's precisely that, which comes in from the French tradition, from Chrétien. And it was fun to play with because I do feel Gareth is smug. I like Gareth, but he is slightly smug, so I was slightly mean to him and he was not. (laughs) Well, I was pleased that you had chosen Gaharis as your main character because... He, you know, with uh, Gawain um, as the older brother, he gets all the, he gets most of the press. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like, oh yeah. And and I liked it that Agravain was mentioned because I always thought he was a twerp. And um, and of course he'd be with, you know, the youngest there uh, mm-hmm. plotting horrible things. But yeah, so I like the way you fit in the brothers doing being brothers but being very distinct very and very much themselves um I thought that was really interesting I really I just like writing those sorts of relationships um my characters are always prone to bickering point scoring off each other mm-hmm. uh generally bad, behaving badly um Phil when he Karen yeah. and I did say to each other that the book of Geharis is very Arthurian but it's also very carry <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Chad and Karen have been to Phil, stayed with Phil and me, and they have seen how our friendship group talks to each other. And it is very yes. like the way the authors talk to each other. Um, but it's also fun to write. And I'm, and you can talk, Chaz, because the way some of your characters talk to each other. <laughs> I but mean, you, you, I want to say something that is specific that kind of just crystallized in my mind just now. A difference between your version of Geharis and the Knights and the People because I've read John and Chrétien and Thomas and all of the others and the way they did it. But as you get through them, none of them really had individual character development and change. Whereas you actually do have characters that make mistakes and grow up and learn from them and discover their own feelings and their own minds and adapt. And I really liked that. Thank you. I mean, part of that's just the difference in in writing. What is writing is supposed to be about? 
between now and, and the 12th and 13th centuries. Um, well, it, it does. This was, there's people that I've thrown across the room, like, I'm going to feel bad and have to fill in for where the guy's name, but the one that's like, here's all of the women do this kind of magic and the boys do that. And there was a character where, oh, I'm going to feel so bad. It's a big name that I can't do. But there's all of the witches and they go off and they start in a small town and like six books later, they're traveling. They've been out there for years and there is zero difference. Was this Robert Jordan? Yes. Thank you. <laughs> I have not read him, but I, I have heard this. Read the first book because it's delightful. If you want a nice setting and a world to play in, I mushed in that world for a while. It's beautiful, but the characters don't change. So if you've met them in the first book, that's who they are and you're basically done. Good to know. Good to know. Mm -hmm. But yours, you have Geharis is not, I, I almost want to say at the beginning of the book, he is not a deep thinker. Oh, he's not. <laughs> no, he's not. He's, he's, he's at the beginning of it, I must say, he's sort of just blown about by, he's, he's almost not heroic at first, but I love that he becomes heroic at last. He basically would rather just stay around at court and do practical things. But yeah. he's got he happened he's born into this family which is just chaotic and gets into trouble. Well he's fitted, all, fitted with yeah. a wife that doesn't fit him, you know. Yes. He doesn't have a lifestyle that's, you know, he's not out there raising cabbages. No, I think he'd much rather have raised cabbages, which he does. There's, there's a wonderful American writer called Gerald Morris. Uh, who writes for children and teens, and he's got a series called The Squire's Tales, which I recommend highly. There are 10 of them, I think, in total, and they follow various characters from the Opulent Court with a lot of new characters, very interesting new characters. And his version of Geharis is an absolute disaster as a warrior, um, but he's really quite good at farming. Um, and I rather like that. Um, I read that after I'd written mine, but it did make me laugh because I think that's what we miss out is, is the ordinary jobs. But I think he started out as diffident because I, I needed him to be someone who wasn't in the spotlight. You also have something that you can do with it. And this is for any people that are thinking after the writer's strike coats over and they want new material. Arthur is a big seller. And I love the way that you tell it. It almost is. I mean, it can tell it came from novellas, but it's like different short stories that give you different part of a pe person's life. And I could actually see this as a television miniseries. Oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> yes, that would be lovely. It wouldn't happen, but it would be lovely. Well, it's um, it's not. I don't know that it's like a five season series, but I could really oh, God, see no. this being a this is what happened and it could inspire <laughs> this will create brand new writers rooms and episode writers i'm like you know i want what what about lamarack's first lover i think he should have his own story too oh, oh no there is someone writing about safir um uh safir is one of the moorish knights and he his brother is palamedes who is one of the more slightly better known knights he he follows yes. the questing beats about we and remember. his rivals yeah. yeah, he's a rival of Tristan's. Safir is one of his his brothers. The other one is Perimenes, I think. I may have that wrong. Uh, but I mean, Safir is very, very minor. I picked him because I needed a knight who was basically a blank sheet of paper for that role. And then I just found him interesting. So he gets to turn up in 
over and over. Um, I have a theory about him and Gawain at the end as well, which Charles can probably work out. <laughs> the point where Gawain says, call me Gavin, I thought, yeah, and I know what you said next. Did you ever sit down and plot it up with, with string or in some kind of thing of like how these family trees work? Because there are a lot of characters because you make all of the women real. Like there was always a Leonette. I, I played her on stage once in Camelot, but all of the different pieces of this, there, there may need to be a whole wiki dedicated to how the intermarriaging and, and activities went of this and marking human maybe not quite so human, mostly human, you know? No, I mean, there's so many people who have worked on this. I mean, Phyllis Ann Carr's Arthurian Campania uh, is the starting point. And oh. she has spent hours, she, I don't, this was originally published as a reference volume for the role-playing game Pendragon. I loved Pendragon too. Yeah, so that's, a, it, it's a Chaosium book. Um, and it, she must have... Because she goes, she's sort of gone through all of Mallory and Chrétien and the sort of more accessible ones, and she does try and get in some of the ones who are hard to find out about from obscure Dutch romances and things. But no, I mean that work was already done, so I kind of knew it. Plus, I'm an early medievalist. Um, when I was doing my PhD, I had a genealogical chart of all the various noble families that were active in medieval in, in Wales between 950 and about 1120 and nice. how they were related to each other and it was something like seven foot long <laughs> I had it all the way around the, t the top of the wall so that I could just remind myself which reese that was so Do I you think, think there was a lot of begatting going on in there oh an awful lot and some of the Welsh royal and noble houses would become attached to a particular name and get people who were who's basically Reese son of Reese son of Reese son of Reese son of Red son of Reese son of Reese which is just annoying and very unfair to historians. Huh. Well so I guess that means that any of us that had family from anywhere in that general area may or may not have you know one gazillionth royal blood in us just because those guys could not keep it in their pants. Oh, um, early medieval rulers in Wales and Ireland had multiple wives and concubines. Um, no. The Reese, who is the fault, the person who is the, the reason for all the Reeses, who is a, a 12th century king from South Wales, Reese, the known usually. Reese Prime, Reese. do you call him Reese Prime? He's, well, no, because there are Reeses before him. He's the famous one. Um, he had children with 19 different women. <laughs> wow. Mm which led to the most, and there was no idea of primogeniture at that point in that culture. So when he started getting older, there was an enormous family feud with everybody stabbing each other and kidnapping each other and imprisoning each other. It's a mess. Uh, but I think it makes, that may be another reason why I find the Orchid Mortons straightforward, because there's only five of them. <laughs> it's, uh, Gla Glamorak has, has four brothers as well, but they, they, don't seem to have fallen out with each other as much as the Orkneys do. I had a challenge at the very beginning with similar names and I'm like, you know, it's like two households both alike in dignity and one has an Agravain and one has an Aglavale. And it, that tripped very, me a little at yeah. first. Yeah, unfortunately, those are their names in the sources. Yeah, yeah. And you can adapt them up to a point. But I do, for, I mean, the Gawain's brothers, they all begin with G or three of them begin with G, you know. Gawain, Geharis, Gareth, Agravain, which has a gene in front, and then Mordred, who doesn't fit the pattern. Um, what is Mordred special? 
But the thing is, though, I know, I mean, I have no problem with those names because I read um, Mary Stewart. Was it Mary oh, Stewart? It was Mary yeah, Stewart. I read yeah. Mary Stewart and I've read, you know, I've been reading about the Orkneys in various sorts in various ways just over my lifetime. So I was oh. like, oh, OK, it's these guys. I wonder what they're up to now. And I really appreciated your version of them because you actually got to the younger brothers. You know, it's always the older two. And oh, yeah, and that Lancelot guy and, you know, the the kind of top tier. And one of the things I really appreciated about about this, um, these stories is that it's about these is about the younger set and you give them a real personality. I thought it was, you know, and you, you, we get to find out what they were up to. And I thought that uh, that was fabulous. I think I think that's very strong, and and Ian is brilliant to uh, publish them and tell him that when we see it. Will do. It's just, I mean, it's it's basically where there was space. Everybody knows them. One of the things that drives me nuts about modern Arthuriana is everybody goes and retells the same story, that sort of famous central story, Lancelot, Guinevere, Arthur, or yeah. the Grail, and there is so much room, and there are so many different stories within the the whole Arthurian universe and it, across the medieval stuff writers introduced new characters all the time and some of them became successful and got went everywhere Lancelot and some of them are only really in one one tale Morian who is a son of Aglavales in fact but you can do this it's it's big and it's it's flexible and I thought well these are the people we don't have tram lines for because if I write about Lancelot then this particular story is expected to go in this particular way and it would be more fun to write about Lamarack who at one point may I think have had any stories about him but they're lost um you know he's the third best knight he periodically falls out with Kristen and that's about all we know about him huh. oh and he he he, he um is Morgaz's lover she dies and the the brothers kill him but that's Lamarack's kind of known trajectory. Poor Lamarack. I know. It, yes, I, I, his his confusion over his 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 bisexuality and his tendency to flatter his eyelashes at people is entirely my invention. I know, yeah. but it's that little bit of creepy. Of I love you so much that I slept with your mom. Is... <laughs> yes. Oh. Yeah. No. Yeah. No. I do think that was probably an element. I do think he he, he is not entirely sane. Not entirely well balanced. I think Safi is quite right when he calls him little snake. Yes. I, I almost want somebody to get a PhD in history and then go back and get a PhD in psychology and start doing some <laughs> here. It's like there's, there's some there's something yeah there is there is some, some quite good psych there's a thing called psychohistory. Uh, yeah. there are, but most of the stuff on that is about in the modern period because there's not the source there's not the material to work in detail. There's a very very interesting biography of Louis the Thirteenth. Written by a psycho historian. Really, what's oh, it called? Do you remember? Louis the Thirteenth, I think. <laughs> well, I mean, how apt? Yeah. By who? Uh, let me look that up. We'll put a link in it. <laughs> yeah. What are you? Are you going to stay with Arthurian? What is your next move after this? This beautiful book is released. Are you going to go Arthurian again on us? Or are you thinking a whole new direction? I was supposed to be writing something else, and have done five six seven drafts and it's still not working uh, and there's a back burner that I've been playing with but what I actually seem to be writing is I, I apparently don't want to let go of these characters but I'm now writing in modern day 
and I love it. Yes. I, I, it's a modern day Arthurian gay rom com with dragons. It really is. That's fabulous. And listicles. <laughs> I love the listicles. The mysticals. Oh, the listicles. Yes, it, it, it's it's very it is a comic it is a comedy, and so there are asides, footnotes, and lists of things like five things Kay thinks you need to know about the Orkney brothers. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, I think at the beginning of any story about the Orkneys, you need that list. <laughs> my my kind of problem with it is that I'm really not sure how to what to do with it because I really don't know that there's a a market for that. Uh, talk, so, to, talk to Ian. Say, Ian, yeah, I mean, if this is actually, it is a novel, so I am contractually obliged to offer it to Door first. Oh, uh, okay. And if they want it, that's, that would be lovely, but they thought they might not, I don't know. And after that, I will then, I suspect the next thing is that it would go to my agents. Um, well, what, you could just simply get a list of everybody who's bought Lorraine and McKinnett albums I mean, because you're standing stones of the Orkney Isles, et cetera, and say, clearly, if you just throw Orkney in the title and, mm. you know, similar something kind of neo waterhouse on the front, you know, you're going to sell it at least to that. She's a bestseller, too. Right. Possibly. Yes. I mean, I was more thinking uh, in terms of a um, uh, possibly having produced it. Um doing a bit of disguising over it so that it can, can it is still Arthurian, but it's not as immediately Arthurian. And it's a magical family gay rom-com with dragons. Because but I would definitely read a gay rom-com with dragons. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well we will put links to all the fascinating things we discussed in this episode on our website, which is www.ridersdrinkingcoffee.com. And everybody should definitely go right out and buy the book of Geharis. It is so much fun and neat, if you, especially if you're an Arthur lover. <laughs> and we really appreciate the time you've come to spend with us today, Carrie. This has been amazing. Thank you for joining us at last. Well, thank you very much. That's very kind of you. Um, thank you for inviting me. <laughs> you've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web magic is cast by Deirdre Schween, and our sound engineer and backup web spiders are David Welsh and John Schmidt. Our intro and exit music is by Michael Engberg, who is the god who runs manyhatsmusic.com. Our podcast sponsors are Jackal Designs, The Beanstream, Arm Street, and whomever you love to go to drink coffee, wine, or just write your next novel. And hey, thanks for listening. Thank you.